0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains Murder. Lots and lots of murder.
0: You stinking bastard.
1: People tell me, you going to go down and go to hell. I'm not wrong. It's time for 911, where's your
0: emergency? Oh, this is shady. We're pretty one work. What's the, the police. Send
1: the police
0: to help. Anyway, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are
1: coming. One in the chest, one in the hip by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I, I we a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a lonely, bottom little... Cher- cherub a face,
0: cherub face little boy who would... Who would, who would whose, whose life would be... I harm someone, he's done it. Kill someone to be an enormous amount of... Life especially at first, enormous amount of of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards,
1: but then that impulse to do it again to come back in and strangle
0: When multi-millionaire Peter Shellard met Shirley Withers, it was love at first sight. Then it was sexy bondage, then embezzlement and bank fraud, then it was murder most foul, bound with dog leads, ropes and an electrical cord, with the added sparkle of an anal suppository.
1: The Bizarre Murder of wealthy, eccentric Peter Shellard is a sideshow of carnivalesque characters, a plethora of possible enemies, phone taps and a hitman, eventually revealing a sad trail of greed and vengeance.
0: Hi, I'm Barney Black.
1: And I'm Tara Saraban.
0: And this is Bloody Murder.
1: We are a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia.
0: And indeed, around the globe.
1: As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones.
0: If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you.
1: We're recording separately again this week due to the social isolation rules, so apologies if we sound a tad different.
0: We've been doing it for so long now, it probably sounds normal.
1: It probably does. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons.
0: We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story.
1: If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com.
0: As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our knuckle-headed fuckery on training wheels first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes.
1: As well as exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where how many holes are barred, Barney?
0: Twelve.
1: No, none. No holes are barred. We go off. Get it? Yeah, kind of. Oh, well, you're the one who fucking wrote it. How's anyone else supposed to get it?
0: <laughs> Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges.
1: And, of course, you're automatically entered into the drawer for our monthly giveaways.
0: All right, hat. let's get murdery.
1: You don't have to get murdery if you stay murdery.
0: Multi-millionaire, real estate mogul and high-end car dealer Peter Shellard was considered by some to be quite eccentric. For example, Peter liked to wear sandals and socks while sporting a fancy business suit. Swaggy! Divorced twice with three daughters, Peter was not born wealthy and he didn't even finish high school. But this self-made man studied at night to get his real estate agent's licence and started his own firm in the bayside suburb of Brighton. Later he took over Kelly Faulconer Motors, which dealt in Rolls Royce and Bentley cars. Likeable Peter had an honest face and a disarming nature, but he suffered from bipolar disorder, which sometimes resulted in him being a tad prickly and hard to deal with. This did not hold Peter back though. The workaholic had managed to amass quite a fortune. The owner of multiple commercial and residential rental properties, Peter was also the director of several companies. He had a hard-on for classic luxury cars. His garage included a 1951 Rolls-Royce Silver Dawn Saloon, a 1923 Rolls-Royce and a Mercedes-Benz 450 SL convertible.
1: I bet that sentence gave our car-loving listeners a boner of sorts too.
0: As well as his collection of fancy-ass cars, Peter dabbled in a bit of pricey antiquing. Peter was always bragging to whoever would listen about his large Dutch organ.
1: Well, I mean, you wouldn't want to keep it a secret now, would you?
0: It does sound like it deserves some awe and praise.
1: Do you know if he played his large Dutch organ well?
0: From what I read, he certainly knew his way around it. Did he let other people play it too? On occasion, Tara, if the mood was right. Sweet! I won't list all of his impressive assets here. Let's just say Peter Schild was worth up to $40 million and owned about 11 properties. Peter lived in a massive $7 million mansion in Caulfield named Rose Craddock. Built in 1857.
1: His house had a full name, like it was people.
0: The Victorian era home had its own ballroom, pool and six-car garage.
1: Ballroom, eh? I wonder if that's where he housed his large Dutch organ.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It'd have to be a pretty big ballroom.
1: I hear it was.
0: Peter was not popular with his neighbours though, Tara. One day he burned the historic garden of his fancy mansion to the ground.
1: Not a big gardening fan, our Peter.
0: When the fire brigade turned up, he took to their hoses with a chainsaw.
1: Not a big fire brigade fan either. Did he ever see the hot firefighters holding puppies calendar?
0: Yeah, he did see that and he hated it. (laughs) Peter put up a massive wire fence around his property and much to the horror of his neighbours, he hauled in shipping containers to house his Rolls Royces. He kept a bunch of rowdy, raucous chooks and dumped loads of manure outside his pissed-off neighbours' homes.
1: Well, if you can think of something that goes with being pissed off better than shit, I'd like to hear about it.
0: <laughs> he also had dogs, ponies and bees.
1: I actually dig the sound of all of that.
0: Well, his neighbours didn't, Tara. They complained about the bees and the council had the hives destroyed. Peter then filed a suit and demanded the remains of his precious dead bees. His ex-wife, Liz Shallow, would later tell media, He was just outrageous. Some of the things he said and did. He loved breaking all the rules. When he was high, he was very energetic and he would do things like get the tractor out at three in the morning. If he was depressed, he'd need a lot of sleep, but there was a brief period in between where he'd be quite normal.
1: When Peter was in his mid-fifties, he fell hard for a woman named Shirley Withers, who was 20 years his junior. According to Peter's friends, the pair shared similar interests. Shirley Withers was born in India on October 14, 1966. Due to her parents being reasonably wealthy, she led a charmed existence in New Delhi until her folks set out for a new life in Australia in 1970. Shirley's childhood down under was mostly uneventful until the age of nine when she was the victim of sexual abuse. This experience hardened little Shirley, who suffered bouts of post-traumatic stress disorder throughout her teenage years and adulthood. After completing high school, Shirley studied to be a bookkeeper. She successfully completed the course and gained employment in this exciting and worldly profession. Shirley worked for a few years before getting married. After the birth of her first child, Shirley quit her job. A year later, she gave birth to a second child. Being a stay-at-home housewife was not a happy experience for Shirley. After the birth of her second baby, she fell into the more common than most people think dark spectre of postnatal depression. In the year 2000, Shirley welcomed in the new decade by divorcing her husband and went on the prowl for a new gentleman friend. She didn't really have a lot of tools to work with, according to author Mary Maxwell, who described Shirley in her book The Bondage Murders as very unassuming, a typical cubicle drone, 33 years old and a bit on the frumpy side, nothing sexy about her.
0: That's a bit harsh.
1: Ah, sick burn, Mary. Another writer, Liam Houlihan, was more scathing in his book. Do you think he got called Hot Lips? <laughs>
0: <laughs> God, I hope so.
1: Another writer, Liam Houlihan, was more scathing in his book, Badlands, Australia's 13 Most Intriguing True Murders. In a noxious turn of phrase, he calls Shirley a stumpy, mendacious, money-hungry midget. Whoa. Regardless, Shirley Withers' sexy charms... Hey, baby. ...worked wonders on Peter Shellard. She seemed to calm him, and he adored her. Head over heels, Peter bought her a house and financed her dream of owning a fancy fashion boutique.
0: Did she call it stumpy, mendacious, money-hungry midget? (laughs)
1: Yeah, nah, that was too long. Uh, instead she went with, nothing sexy about her.
0: I guess a bit on the frumpy side was already taken.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I've shopped there ever since ISO kicked in. Before ISO, I mostly shopped at typical cubicle drone.
0: But there was trouble in paradise for Peter and Shirley. Cracks had started to appear in their romance. Peter spoke to his ex-wife Liz about it. She would later say in court, he sounded scared, fearing for his life. And that's when the bondage started. But more on that later. Shelley's Peter Finance fashion shop, Zusette Boutique, located in the uber-wealthy beachside suburb of Brighton, was filled with all manner of lavish, elegant garb from brands such as Charlie Brown, Lisa Ho, Mariana Hardwick and Barney Black. But Shelley's <laughs> skill was more in buying than selling these spiffy vestments.
1: Oh, Barney Black for ladies. Uh, I wish I could afford to buy some of their beautiful gowns.
0: One of Peter Shellard's daughters, Jenny, also worked at the shop, and she observed how the boutique was being run. Jenny said, My first impressions when I started working there that was just a mess. I couldn't understand how Shirley kept paying us every week. I had seen invoices totaling thousands of dollars and wondered where Shirley was getting the money. Shirley would just continuously buy stock for the business and for herself. She definitely had a problem with spending money. Peter's ex Liz had mixed feelings about Shirley as well, saying She would never look you in the eye, though she was always very kind.
1: Kind with a side of side eye.
0: Others were not so generous with their opinions and said she was a trashy nouveau rich bitch with a superiority complex completely out of sync with her intelligence or abilities.
1: Well, don't go holding back now.
0: Her abrasive sense of entitlement did not go unnoticed by a friend of Peter's. Shirley told her
1: I've had money all my life, right? I married someone who was, you know, rich and we made a shitload of money. So for me to spend $5,000 on a handbag or a pair of shoes is nothing. <laughs> right, I was up in Sydney at Fashion Week and um, Peter gave me his credit card because he owed me a lot of money. And <laughs> I said, oh darling, I really need you to give me real money. Anyway, so I bought a few bits and pieces up there and then Peter asked how much I was spending and I said, well, I'm sure that I don't know. And he said, well, how come you don't know how much you spent? And I said, because money's not a problem to me.
0: (laughs) A later court summary said of Shirley Withers, in those conversations the applicant showed herself to be a liar, a hypocrite, a racist and a snob. And then the bondage commenced. But more on that later.
1: No, come on, tell us now. The listeners need to know now, Barney.
0: Okay then. Friends would later say Peter. He told me that he'd gone to the Hellfire Club with a friend. He said he would dress up in a full range of leather outfits and had belts with studs. He said that there was whipping. He said initially his pain threshold was low, but after a number of visits, his tolerance for pain increased to the point where he really liked what was occurring. He found it erotic. Peter Shellard started attending these erotically painful events more than a few times a week, Tara. He quite liked them. It did not take long for Peter to convince Shirley into participating in these sexy time bondage sessions. She told friends she hated them but did them for Peter. It was around this time Peter gave her a key to his Caulfield mansion and employed Shirley to do some bookkeeping for some of his business interests.
1: These two seemingly innocuous decisions Peter made to put his trust in Shirley would be the beginning of his demise. He must have really trusted Shirley, for soon after that, he made her a signatory on his Kello Faulkner Motors check accounts. With creditors barking at the doors of her fashion boutique and threatening to sue for what they were owed, the temptation for Shirley to slip a few dollars out of Peter's accounts and into her own proved too strong. It wasn't long before it wasn't just a few dollars though, Barney. In the coming months, Shirley shifted nearly a million dollars out of Peter's business accounts into her own grubby little goblin hands. The resplendent couture at Suzette Boutique was not exactly flying off the shelf. Shirley was overdrawn by $43,000 on two credit cards and her shop owed almost a quarter of a million dollars. In possibly one of the most arrogant and stupid embezzlement plans ever hatched, in 13 months Shirley wrote nearly 200 cheques drawn from the Kello Faulkner accounts all written to cash and amounting to a total of $913,895.
0: Oh, that's a lot of ballers.
1: I couldn't count how many bollers that was.
0: That's a lot of Barney shitcoin.
1: Oh my God, it's a sewerage full of Barney shitcoin. During this time, like a fly with a booger in its eye, she lied to anyone that would listen that it was her who had been bankrolling Peter Shellard. Eventually, Peter busted Shirley and removed her as a signatory to the Kello-Falconer accounts. A week later, Peter complained to a friend that Shirley had pinched one of his credit cards and a checkbook and was spending up big time. To recoup some of his losses, Peter Shellard made plans to sell Shirley's house. When he'd bought the property for Shirley, Peter had put the East Bentley house in his name at her request as she didn't want her ex-husband to get a piece of it. Peter now told her to find a new place to live. This turn of events did not please Shirley. Her green skin vibrated into a bright red and she rocketed 19 feet into the air. Really? Nah, probably not.
0: I choose to believe she did.
1: I choose to believe that too.
0: You know what else pissed her off, Tara? What? Peter Shellard had a will which was drawn up in 2002. Shirley knew about this will as she had witnessed it. In the document, Peter said a nice fuck you to his ex-wives by bequeathing them a measly one each. Actually that bit pleased Shirley.
1: Yeah, goblins love that petty shit.
0: The remainder of his estate worth up to 40 million was willed to his three daughters. And in what must have made smoke come out of her ears and her ass, Shirley Withers didn’t even warrant a mention. But sneaky Shirley put on her sneaky Shirley hat. And in April 2005, she typed up a second version of Peter's will on a computer, which she backdated to 2004. In this new will, she still left the fuck you to Peter's ex-wives, one buck each, but left the rest of the fortune to her she-devil self. Now, as we all know, the second will was not worth the paper it was written on without the signature of Peter Shallard, but to devious and deluded Shirley, this was but the first step in a grandiose plan of greed and revenge. The second step was to recruit two knucklehead junkies. It wasn't too difficult for Shirley to entangle heroin addicts Stan Kalinikos and Sophie Stupas in her shit web of deceit.
1: Shit web of deceit, huh?
0: Yeah, that's the web that comes out of your bum, you know, talking out your ass.
1: You really are one of the greatest writers of your generation, Barney Black.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And what shoes are you wearing?
1: I'm wearing, uh, this is uh, Shit Webs by Barney Black.
0: Now Stan and Sophia really liked heroin. I mean all junkies are heroin enthusiasts but Stan and Sophia really, really, really liked heroin. It was the beginning, it was the end and it was the bit in the middle to them. Anybody, how do you feel about heroin Stan and Sophia? Stan and Sophia, oh we love it, we really love it. It's the cat's pyjamas. They had a spiritual-like connection to junk and had so for quite some time. It was their reason to get out of bed late in the afternoon.
1: Described as a gentle giant, 44-year-old Stanley Canilakos was born on October 29, 1962. Stan’s parents then went on to sire three more children, all girls. Stan grew up in Melbourne but moved to Greece with his family when he was 10 years old. He returned to Australia age 17, his parents following a little later. Stan completed his schooling to year 12 in Melbourne but did not pass all of his subjects. He then enrolled in an electronics course for two and a half years, but did not complete it. Over the years, he had a number of jobs doing menial labour, but no employment seemed to stick. Stan got engaged twice, but neither relationship seemed to work out. Hmm, there's a pattern emerging here.
0: I believe there is, Tara.
1: Stan had been recently informed that he was a father to a 10-year-old child whom he had never met. Stan's passion for heroin had begun when he was in his early 20s, which is why he had such form. He had a large number of convictions from 1988 to 2004. The offences are virtually all for trafficking or possessing drugs or for drug-related property offences. Between June 1991 and August 2004, he served at least eight terms of imprisonment, ranging from four to 12 months and totaling over four years. A judge once said of him, For many years you have lived the life of a drug addict and a petty criminal with little respect for the law. You have consistently failed to get the message that your drug addiction and criminal offending was leading you to personal disaster. And it did. Big time. But Stan wasn't black and white. Stan's aunt, Elva Noonan, would later give evidence in court on his behalf. She spoke fondly of his tenderness towards his grandmother when she was dying of cancer. John Franklin, a member of the Salvation Army and Stan's cousin, swore an affidavit which was tendered on his behalf. It reads in part, Stan presents himself as a softly spoken individual who appears to have a childlike view on life and does not seem to display the same level of maturity as his peers. He does, however, have a very gentle nature. I've never witnessed Stan being aggressive or displaying violent behaviour. Although Stan has had a somewhat colourful past, I believe him to be caring and thoughtful in nature. Stan seems to be easily influenced and, in my opinion, would benefit from immersing himself with positive role models.
0: Like Shirley Withers.
1: No, no, that's definitely not what he meant. I think he was thinking more like Keanu Reeves.
0: Hmm, yeah. Now let's meet Sophia Stupas. 31-year-old Sophia and her twin sister Alexandra were born on April 30th, 1975. Their mother Joy and father John already had another daughter named Nicole. Sophia left school at 15, only part way through year 10. At 16, Sophia left home to go to live with a friend on Phillip Island, where she immediately went on unemployment benefits before spending all her time drinking, smoking doobies, and getting into minor criminal mischief.
1: Much like yourself, Barney.
0: After a couple of years of this, she returned to Melbourne and started taking hard drugs, speed and heroin. Over the years, Sophia did her best to throw that monkey off her back. She did have periods when she had been stable, working full-time and not indulging in the wackety-smackety.
1: Nobody calls it that, Barney. I do. Yeah, but you shouldn't.
0: For a time, she worked with her father as a mechanic.
1: Like Kylie Minogue Neighbours.
0: That's right. And then she worked at a place named the Kingston Club for about nine months, doing a hospitality course. She enjoyed the work and was good at it. Sophia was also once in a stable relationship, but that broke down. Afterwards, she attempted suicide. Following that, it was back to the heroine. Sophia has a criminal record, but nowhere near as long as stands. She faced court on five occasions between 1993 and 2004 on using and possession charges and on drug or alcohol-related property, assault and driving charges. She was sentenced to bonds, community-based orders, fines or suspended terms of imprisonment, all of which she complied with. Both Stan and Sophia were in the perfect state to be manipulated and led by murderous goblin bog witch queen Shirley Withers.
1: We'll be back with more of the millionaire bondage murder after this.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So Barney, what time is it?
0: It's true crime nerd time. Oh, True crime nerd time. True crime Crime nerd time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime-related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone. We'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Drake, and he's not a bird.
1: No? Is he's he, a person. Is he a Canadian rapper? No. Does he make Drake's coffee cake from Seinfeld?
0: No. And Look, it'll all become apparent, Tara. Okay, he writes, my my name's Drake and I live in Florida. <laughs> and that's the end of his true crime time. No, it isn't. <laughs>
1: <I'm>... <laughs> I am Florida man. The end.
0: I'm sure you guys have heard of the show Mr. In Between* on FX, but if you're living under a fucking rock in Melbourne, I'll share what it's about. The show is about a man named Ray who lives in Sydney. He's a former Australian military man and ex-con. The show follows him while he tries to be a good father and take care of an older brother who suffers from MD. Ray works as a bouncer at a strip club that his crime boss friend owns and as a hired gun. So a bit of an enforcer, bit of an assassin. You learn early on that he lives by a certain code. Don't be an asshole and you won't get bashed. He ends up meeting a girl who's an EMT who knows nothing about his real job. Ray seems to be almost unkillable as he gets the better of five crims who want him dead and proceeds to have a phone call with his girlfriend whilst burying all the bodies. Honestly, I cannot wait for the third season. Such a great show and incredibly intense. I hope you check it out if you haven't already. P.S. Get At Me Tara, L M A O.
1: Damn straight, I'll get at you, Drake. Of course, we've seen Mr. In Between, and we love its. Guts! It is one of the very best TV shows ever made. Best Aussie show, that is for sure. The creator, writer and star is a guy named Scott Ryan and we love him so hard it hurts. Ouch. Yeah. One of my proudest moments in life was when he liked a comment I made on his Insta and he followed me back. It was like squee central at my house. I danced around so fucking much that the dog joined in and thought it was a party. When Scott Ryan accepted my Facebook friend request, I also went bananas. You see, Scott is Barney and my new best friend. He just doesn't know it yet. Hey, Scotty. Hey, Scotty. Yeah, um, yeah, he doesn't know. One day he'll know. He might be quite terrified to learn. Uh, but yeah, absolutely recommend the hell out of this show to everyone. I even got my 80-year-old mum to watch it and she loved it.
0: I know you already know this, but the film that was a precursor to the TV show is A Quarker 2. It's called The Magician and was made in 2005. Yeah,
1: um, I recently did a rewatch on that and it stands up. It really does. Yeah, it's a really interesting story about um, how Scott Ryan um, spent like a decade trying to get the TV show Mr. in Between made. And he was working as a taxi driver for a really long time and pretty much gave up on filmmaking. But thank God he didn't.
0: Thanks, Drake. That television series is Mr. In Between on FX, the details of which will be in the show notes. If you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to contribute.
1: Also, if you're listening, Scott Ryan, give us a call.
0: Yeah, don't be a stranger, Scotty.
1: Yeah, give us a call. Hit us up. Slide into our DMs.
0: FaceTime us, buddy.
1: (laughs) Come on over. Oh, well, we can talk from like a few meters away.
0: Pregnancy is an exciting time, full of hope and wonder, and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever, and for victims of fetal abduction in the United States, their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series, we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America, from the highly publicized cases to the little-known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for the conclusion of The Millionaire Bondage Murder.
1: Down on his luck, heroin enthusiast Stan already knew Shirley Withers. He'd been supplying the demented harpy with amphetamines for some years. One day, Sophia blew into Shirley's high-priced boutique. Shirley immediately saw her potential and groomed her with clothes and money. Afterwards, she introduced Sophia to Stan. When Sophia met Stan, it seemed perfect. They had a lot in common. Both were existing solely to take heroin, both scoring at every opportunity, and both were estranged from their families. Shirley lent Sophia and Stan her car, made them gifts, and gave them money to squander at Crown Casino.
0: What kind of gifts did she make them? Did she lay them some goblin eggs?
1: She knitted them shirts from her pubes. Oh, speaking of, Mother's Day's coming up. Don't forget to remind me to call my mum. Shirley explained to her minions her plan to get revenge against Peter Shellard. The reason she gave was because Peter made her do the bondage sexy time business. Shirley wanted to replace Peter's will with the one she wrote and get him to sign it, as well as pinch the house deeds and force him to sign the house over to her. The proposal was for them to dope him and then tie him up and make him sign the documents. Shirley's drug of choice to inject Peter with was Prolidone, which she could get from her brother who was a nurse. But after she got it and showed it to Stan, he wanted it all for himself.
0: Well, being a drug connoisseur, he wanted to try it.
1: Makes sense. It was then that the plan was changed to use heroin instead.
0: On May 6, 2005, Shirley gave Stan and Sophia $300 to buy heroin. The two were to keep two-thirds of the score for their own use, with the remainder going to Shirley to be used on Peter Shellard. On the day of the plan attack, Stan and Sophia got high on heroin. Sophia was not initially going to take part in the home invasion. Shirley just needed Stan's muscle, but hey, the more the merrier, so Sophia decided to tag along for a lark. Shirley let herself into the Caulfield mansion with the key that Peter had given her. Behind her followed, smacked off their tits, Stan and Sophia, both wearing disguises.
1: Disguises? What were they wearing? I have to know.
0: Well, I don't know. The court documents didn't say.
1: But I have to know, and more importantly, our listeners have to know.
0: Alright then, they were dressed like Willy Wonka and Optimus Prime. Happy?
1: Yeah, not Really?
0: Creeping and sneaking, the murderous trio slunk down the hallway and into Peter's bedroom. They found Peter ensconced in slumber, snug in his king-size bed. The three terrible twits looked at Peter, then at each other. They then pounced in a struggle ensued. Shirley put a pillow over Peter's face so he couldn't identify his assailants. He screamed, Optimus Prime, what are you doing here? Wait, what? The disguises, still not happy?
1: Uh, Not really.
0: Peter pushed Shirley away and the pillow hit the floor. Stan grabbed Peter and held down his arms. Sophia got in there to help by trying to hold Peter's head down, but Peter saw her hand coming and bit her finger, chomping off the tip. Sophia winced in pain, clutching her hand. Then she got mad, grabbed the nearest object, which just happened to be a clock radio, and smashed Peter's shellard twice in the head with it. Peter slumped back onto the bed, dazed. The trio gagged Peter and tied him up. They placed a pillowcase over his head and went to the kitchen.
1: Shirley tossed the place, looking for the paperwork to the property she still considered to be her house. Meanwhile, Peter was moaning in the bedroom. Sophia said to Peter, you want some more fucking clock radio? Shirley intervened and said, I got this and grabbed the heroin filled syringe out of her handbag. Stan and Sophia weren't exactly sure what to do now, so Stan reverted to his junky instinct. He later told a courtroom, I started wandering around the house looking to see what I could find, looking to see if there was anything worth pinching. Shirley had other plans, devious, slightly uncomfortable plans, plans involving an anal suppository.
0: See, that sounds like a joke, but it isn't.
1: It isn't. Stan would later testify... Oh, she, she said she'd done her bit and she wanted someone else to do it because she wanted Peter out for longer. She wanted someone to put the suppository in him. Sophia would also later testify about the butt pill. Oh, Shirley produced a Prolodone tablet and had asked Dan. She wanted him to insert it into Peter. Stan said, fuck that. There was no way he'd do it. And then I volunteered. I said, I'll give it a crack. Get it. Seriously, I just wanted to go home, eh? I grabbed a blue plastic glove from the kitchen and went in with Shirley and uh, I bunged it in. The protolone suppository was intended to have a sedative effect, but what they didn't realise was that Peter Shellard was already dead. He died from a combination of head injuries, strain from being bound up, a pre-existing heart condition and, of course, the heroin injection.
0: The next day, Stan and Sophia went out to buy some more heroin. After scoring, they returned to the Caulfield mansion. Shirley told them to re-enter by the window so it would look like a break-in. But they were too high and so was the window. (laughs) That's probably the best thing I've ever written in my life, isn't it? It's
1: definitely the best line in this whole thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Peter, who they assumed was just sleeping off the heroin, was much the same as they had left him, trussed up and gagged. Sophia checked for a pulse but couldn't tell if there was one there. After a spot of cleaning, they then all scarpered. Shirley drove Stan and Sophia home. En route, they got some more heroin.
1: Well, they had been working hard. They deserved a treat.
0: The following day, Shirley got up super early and started work at a Brighton shop at the crack of noon. That's super early, right? Oh,
1: yeah. that's crack o'clock, baby.
0: After five hours of not selling any dresses, Shirley picked up a half a chicken and chips from a local takeaway and headed to Peter's mansion. At 6.50pm, she called Triple O and weaving some serious Meryl Streep shit, winning multiple Academy Awards and a few Emmys, she cried and reported her grim discovery.
1: He was into rough sex. I don't know who could have done this to him.
0: <laughs> oh. Wow, that was quite compelling. When the cops interviewed Shirley Withers, she told them she had not been at the mansion the night Peter was attacked and had spent that evening working in her shop. Her only other comment was no comment, but police could smell her stanky guilt from a mile away and, oh, it smelt bad, <laughs> and they immediately organised to tap her phones. She ain't right, said one clever detective.
1: Police already had plenty to go on. Luds There was a flurry of calls between Shirley and Stan, particularly during the period of Peter's murder. At the crime scene, Sophia had left a bloody fingerprint, as well as some bloody finger. She also kindly left more of her DNA on a cigarette butt in the kitchen. They'd done a fine job of cleaning the crime scene, said no one ever. It was far from the perfect crime. Shirley had drawn up another will, but she neglected to take it to the mansion on the night of the murder. Shirley spoke often after Peter's death of looking for a copy of the new will that she said he'd signed. She seemed to think if she talked enough about the will she wrote up on her computer being signed by Peter, she could make it exist. She could make it so... If you think that's daft, in a phone conversation with Dale O'Sullivan, a friend of both Shirley's and Peter's, she mentioned that she might know who killed Peter. O'Sullivan started the conversation off with a spot of casual racism.
0: Yeah, so I thought that Mary guy might be involved on the basis that he does drink. He goes down to the Inkerman Hotel, he drinks with other Maoris. I'm not knocking Maoris.
1: No, it's not him. I've got a really good idea who it is, but I'm not telling the cops. That's what I want to talk to you about.
0: Is it more than one person?
1: Oh, they're greedy, dirty little druggies.
0: Well, they've probably tortured Peter to open his safe and give them all his money.
1: By God, I'll tell you. I found out who did this. I'll fucking kill them with my hands and I'll make the bastards suffer. Shelley also told more than one friend in the aftermath of Peter's death that Peter promised her a Paris wedding, saying, Peter and I were actually going to go to Paris later in the year. He proposed. He was really, really happy. (laughs) Um, We were actually going to get married when we were over there because we didn't want it to be a big fanfare. Peter actually bought me my dress and everything, (laughs) which was a complete load of horseshit." A web,
0: if you will. A web of horseshit.
1: <laughs> Peter had told multiple people he would never marry again and was trying to get Shirley out of his life. Two weeks after the murder, a new cast member joined our Cohen-esque murder movie, the so-called hitman Victor Coella. It was time, Shirley thought, to clean house and she did not trust her junkie pals to keep their mouths shut. Uh, we're going to uh, read from the phone transcripts between uh, killer-for-hire Victor and Shirley now.
0: How do you want them to die? Do you want them to suffer?
1: Oh, yes.
0: Would you like them in hospital? You're not paraplegic?
1: No, 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 no. That's dirty. I want them dead.
0: Well, I'm going to need photos and I need their address. What do they do?
1: They're nothing. They're fucking heroin junkies. They stay home all day and shoot up.
0: Now, Tara, where do you think you would find a hitman in Melbourne's criminal underbelly?
1: Well, not on the dark web. That was an enormous waste of sweet, sweet Bitcoin, and I'm never going to do it again.
0: No, that's right. One would think you would need to have some serious contacts. Contacts that you have established over many years of being a career criminal. Sound about right?
1: Yeah, I reckon.
0: Wrong. Hitmen just come to you when you are in need of a murder-for-hire situation.
1: Please explain.
0: Well... When you need a hitman, they just turn up. Oh, sweet. That's what happened to Shirley. Victor Colella appeared out of nowhere. He said to Shirley Withers he had heard of her um, problem on the criminal grapevine <laughs> and he offered his services. After the phone call, Shirley and Victor met four times. She paid him a $3,000 deposit for a $10,000 hit on Stan and Sophia.
1: So he just called her up out of the blue, like he was cold calling for hitman business when he rang her.
0: That's right, exactly. <laughs> She told Hitman Victor, Stan and Sophia were meant to tie up Peter Shellard, not harm him. But that wasn't the only reason she wanted the smackhead snuffed. As Shelley explained, the big problem with junkies, if they don't get caught, they're still likely to squeal later for the price of a fix. It was time to tie up some looser than loose ends. Of course, all of these conversations were being taped by the Victoria Police. And of course, Victor was an undercover detective.
1: <laughs> of course. Shirley Withers was charged with murder and two charges of incitement to murder. For all her wrong-headed fuckery, Shirley was right about something, though. The junkies did squeal like little piggies just before dinner time. (laughs) Stan Kallinacos and Sophia Stupas pleaded guilty to Peter Shellard's manslaughter and were both jailed for six years with a a three-and-a-half-year minimum. The judge noted that they had been manipulated and lied to by Shirley.
0: Yeah, when police arrested them, they immediately confessed. They said, oh, yeah, we had something to do with that. And they offered testimony up. They, at that point, they knew that they'd been swindled, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they had. But, I mean, also, regardless of, of what the motive for this was, I mean, just taking someone's word for something and breaking into someone's house and, well, killing them, it's probably not a good idea. It's criminal stupidity is what it is at at best. Well, it
0: really is. It really is.
1: Shirley Withers pleaded guilty to the incitement charges but contested the murder charge, claiming it was all an accident which was, of course, perpetrated by Stan and Sophia. After a six-week trial, a jury found beyond reasonable doubt that Shirley had intended to kill Peter Shellard. The judge sentenced her to 26 years in jail for the murder and two incitement charges with a non-parole period of 18 years behind bars. But Shirley then successfully appealed her murder conviction and her murder charge was reduced to manslaughter by an unlawful and dangerous act. She got lucky. It could still be said that she killed Peter, just not that she did it on purpose. The court refused to overturn the charges relating to Shirley Withers' plans to kill Stan and Sophia. A new non-parole period of 12 years was set. It was said that there was nothing to indicate any genuine remorse on her part, which isn't really that surprising.
0: Yeah, there were two main problems with the case. They really couldn't uh, prove men's rear, as an in intent mm-hmm. and also what he actually died of. So they couldn't prove that she went there to kill him. She might have just went there to get those documents signed and torture him.
1: Yeah, I know, but I, I really think that's a weird loophole. If you just go, whoops, it was an accident, like, you know. There wasn't anything to prove that she didn't go there to kill him either.
0: Well, that's right. Um, but the other, the main thing really is they couldn't really prove what he died of. Was it their head injury? Was it their heroin? Or did he just have a heart attack? They really couldn't nail that. But, whoa, what a story, hey?
1: I know. I know, big time. Um I mean, even if he had a heart attack, I think they're still culpable. I mean, what a coincidence, right?
0: I have but one question. What is Aussie Az?
1: Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Northern Territory resident Jaden Stockbridge was stoked to be going fishing the other day on Darwin's middle arm.
0: Is that Charles Darwin's dick? It's a river, Barney. (laughs)
1: He'd recently bought a brand-new Yamaha 750 motor for his prized bright green little boat and he couldn't wait to see how she handled. He'd packed his rods and fishing gear, grabbed a six-pack of mid-strength beer and a pack of ciggies and he was off for an awesome day of fishing. But stokedness quickly turned to terror when the throttle locked on full speed on Stocksy's bright green little boat and it hurled into the mangroves at an alarming pace.
0: Oh, Fuck. Me, me, me fags have gone in the drink. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Describing the incident, Stoxy told the NT News, oh, I was ducking under branches like in the Matrix. I thought I was fucking dead. I ripped it out of the centre of the boat and I was knocked out for a couple of minutes. I don't know how, but when I came to, the bow was up in the tree and a brand new 750 yammy on the back was underwater. As Stoxy came to you after being knocked unconscious, he realised that he had even bigger problems than the damage to his noggin and his prized bright green little boat when he noticed a three-metre or ten-foot croc circling him. Being a bit of a MacGyver and an obvious legend, Stoxy came up with a cunning plan. Stoxy said, "Ah oh, threw my stubbies at it. Full ones too. I'd rather drink them, but you gotta hit the croc with something and they were only middies.
0: Only mid-strength, maybe he was trying to offend the croc by not offering it a full-strength beer.
1: Perhaps. Stocksy's plan worked. He said, oh, ''I disappeared and then I called the police.'' ''The whole tank of fuel was leaking and I didn't like my darts because of it and I don't usually miss out on a dart.'' It was an expensive packet as well. After the croc scampered off, offended about the calibre of beer on offer, some friendly blokes fishing nearby came and rescued Stocksy and his fishing gear and expensive cigarettes. He was taken to the hospital where he found out he'd suffered a ripped bicep and a broken nose. Stoxy said his prized little green boat is completely fucked, but he's still looking forward to swamp fishing adventures in the future. Ain't nothing going to hold Stoxy back.
0: Completely fucked. (laughs) I I really like how you said that. (laughs) I kind of feel that just sums up my life, really. Completely fucked. fucked.
1: How's 2020 been? Completely fucked. (laughs) Ah, well, that brings us to the end of the episode.
0: But before we scamper off, Mm -hmm. we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to...
1: Jessica Nothing from the United States.
0: And Tracy Lancashire from Australia.
1: We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team.
0: We love our patrons, Tara, and... And to attempt to show them how much we do, we've been holding monthly giveaways. The
1: winner of April's Prize, the fabulous Studio Femme Wireless Earbuds Bubs. Mwah. The winner of April's Prize, the fabulous Studio Fem Wireless Earbuds, was Leah Heinrich. Good work. For our May Prize, we're giving away a pair of Bloody Murder leggings. Look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms.
0: Or as Michael Caine would say, look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms. Oh,
1: I like that better. That's better when Michael Caine says everything.
0: For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, Tara. So thank you to
1: Brett Eed.
0: Rhonda Lee Ostwald
1: Gemma Ferris
0: Jonathan Rowling
1: Melissa Wilson Oh, she upped her pledge.
0: And Eloise Saldon, she wrote Yo, listen to you for a while. Enjoy the Aussie fuckwit attitude.
1: <laughs> right on, girl.
0: Right on. Now, if you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black.
1: And I've been Tara Saraband.
0: And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page.
1: And, of course, rate and subscribe because it really does help us rock the Casbah. You can follow us to our Facebook page or join our brilliant Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore podcast.
0: Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our Threadless merchandise.
1: Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon.
0: Goodbye and adios.
1: And keep kicking against the pricks.
0: (laughs) It's completely fucked.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I was going in and out of that accent a little bit.
0: Oh, I liked it. That was a good one. That was a good Aussie as.
1: Oh, cool, thanks. That was a good episode. I think I really like it when I get to do funny voices. Makes me feel alive.
0: Yeah, it is really fun. I'm just happy I got an Optimus Prime joke in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. We actually got a couple of Optimus Prime jokes in there. I was pretty impressed. I'm still a bit disappointed <laughs> that no one wore an Nosferatu disguise, but, you know, maybe one day.
0: If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then you're fucking wrong. Ah. Huh? You can go and jam it up your ass.
1: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, yes. That's what I'm thinking, but there might be a nicer way of saying it.
0: I don't think there is.
1: No, you think that's a polite way of saying it? I think I nailed
0: it. Yeah, I nailed it.
1: (laughs) You always do.
0: Located in the uber-wealthy beachside suburb of Brighton, was filled with all manner of lavish, elegant garb from brands such as Charlie Brown, Lisa Ho, Mariana Hardwick and Barney Black. But Shelley's skill was more in buying than selling these spiffy vestments.
1: Oh, Barney Black for ladies. I wish I could afford to buy some of their beautiful gowns.
0: And Margot Robbie, what are you wearing tonight? Well, this this is just a beautiful little Barney Black number. I love his fashion. (laughs)
1: Yes, um I am the face of, Marco Robbie of course is the face of Barney Black Boutique. Uh, she, she wears Barney Black gowns to all the major events in Hollywood.
0: Well, they're more like jorts than gowns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you see this uh, this sequin dress I'm wearing now? It's actually culottes.
0: That's right. Oh, hello, this soup is just delicious.
1: Oh, is that a Barney Black purse that you're carrying? Oh my God, it's so glamorous
0: thank you and what shoes are you wearing
1: I'm wearing uh, this is uh, Shitwebs by Barney Black you see how the, um, the web is brown and yet it twinkles that's because of the Swarovski crystals
0: yeah and how about the stank hey eh?
1: oh stanky as fuck just ask Margot Robbie <laughs> <laughs> I can just see her ad campaign <gasps> Barney Black stanky as fuck wear it to events you want so no, that's
0: probably not how it goes. Yeah, yeah, I've had this idea for anal bleaching, right? It's called a half and half. So you have half your anus white and the other half is darkened. And I call it a yin yang because it's a yin yang in your yin yang.
1: What about a, a yin yangus? Yin yangus?
0: Because, yeah, because you know the yin yang is half white and half black. And that's and it go, and it sometimes you call a butthole a yin yang. No, you don't.
1: No one calls
0: don't it yang? that. No. Oh. I still think it's a great idea though. It could be the next thing.
1: It could be the next thing. Wow, your personal Instagram must be lit, Barney.
0: Yeah, the Margot rubber you'll get one and then it'll just go off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, Margot definitely. She'll lead the way with that one. We love her. We do. Yeah, I think my Scott Ryan enthusiasm just, like, dried out my mouth. You'd think it would do... I guess all the moisture went elsewhere. Um. (laughs) Uh, Oh,
0: Tara. (laughs) Joking. Shirley put a pillow over Peter's face so he couldn't identify the... Peter... Shirley... Peter Shirley. Shirley put a a pillow over Peter's face so she...
1: (laughs) (laughs) How many pickled Peter Piper pillows did Shirley Peter Pepper pick? (laughs) Twelve. You're still fantasising about Margot Robbie's asshole, aren't you?
0: I (laughs) am. That would put my brand on the map.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It just takes one well-placed Hollywood anus to put your brand on the map, Barney. It really
0: does. Mm -hmm.
1: So, look, I'm really curious about this. Can we just role-play this a little bit? So, Shirley's at home doing whatever it is goblins do to relax, and then the phone rings...
0: Ring, ring. Ring, ring. Hello, Shirley, with us speaking. Oh, yeah, good evening, uh, Shirley. My name's Victor. I've heard on the Criminal Grapevine that uh, you might need uh, two problems dealt with.
1: Oh, oh, Um, excuse me, where did you get my number? I'm on the do not call list.
0: Oh, it's nothing like that. It's just if you want me to murder some people, I could, I could help you out with that.
1: Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were doing a survey or something horrible like that. Oh, did you hear that I need some people killed? Yes. Oh, well, that's what a charming coincidence. In fact, I do need some people killed. Would you kill them for me? You
0: think? Well, absolutely. It, it costs about ten thousand uh, dollars. You can get a two for one deal at the moment.
1: Oh, oh, really? Is there some kind of code? I need some kind of like I don't know, um, bloody murder one five or something.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, sure. You can get ten percent off with that
1: <laughs> if you're a bloody murder listener. Okay. Anyway, I think uh, I think we've proved up. Yes. they kept lying that it wasn't on,
0: and they were using sonic pressure on my head since
1: 1997. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.